from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Hello, good morning, church. Uh, one of the um, joys that I've had since being in Birmingham uh, as your pastor is getting to get uh, just be exposed to the camaraderie that is true of just pastoral ministry in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I, you know, coming from uh, a different context, I didn't have a lot of close brothers in ministry outside of my local church. Um, but it's been amazing to get to experience a ministry in life with other men in ministry here in the city. And one of the guys I've been able to get to know a lot is Dustin Ratcliffe. And Dustin is a staff pastor at Iron City Church in Southside. And I think he actually preached the Sunday before I came. Is that right? Yeah, all right, this is weird. Um, no, I'm kidding. Dustin is a great guy. Um, just have grown just to love him and cherish his friendship even in the last six months. He he actually reached out to me when I first moved here to include me in this like thriving pastors group of other pastors in the area. I'm so grateful to him for that. So he's going to be preaching for us today. Uh, so grateful to have him this morning. Um, but I do want to read for us our text for this morning, and then I want to pray over us uh, as we come to hear God's word. So let's uh, read this together. First Peter chapter 2. Verses 11 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord, church. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Father, your faithfulness is great, even when our faithfulness is waning. And I'm so thankful to be reminded of the promises of who you are through the body, through the body of Christ, singing those promises over one another. I pray, O oh God, as we examine your word, that you expose our hearts, that you teach us, instruct us, give us great humility as we look at this text for this morning, a text that every single one of us needs to hear and be reminded of. Father, we do thank you that ultimately you are our king, that you reign, that you rule supreme. And we bow the knee to you before we bow the knee to anyone else. So Father, we pray that you remind us of how to do that and do it faithfully and well as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but as citizens here on the earth as well. I pray for Dustin as he comes to deliver your word to us. I pray the Holy Spirit just strengthens him, gives him courage, gives him words to speak to us. I thank you, Lord, that you've been with him in his prep. And I pray now that he delivers your words to us to build us up 
and to bring glory to your name. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Good, yes. It's always encouraging when I say good morning, people actually respond to that. So, uh, well, Austin, thanks for having me. And y'all have an incredible pastor. It's been really great getting to know him as well and uh, to have a friend in him. And uh, yeah, he loves y'all a lot as well. You know, part of this thriving pastors group that we get together is just to wrestle with the challenges of being a pastor. And uh, it's hard for all pastors. You should pray for your pastor, but he loves y'all. He talks about how encouraged he is by y'all often. And so I'm glad to be here and uh, glad to walk through this text in First Peter. Uh, one of the, the things I think is important in this text is this imagery of being ambassadors, representatives, sojourners in a foreign land. And so I want to start with uh, an image here that I think is helpful for this context of what an ambassador, what a sojourner can look like, a representative in, in a foreign place. And so uh, how many of y'all remember Duck Dynasty? I like, I like participating. Okay, yeah, you can raise your hand. You can nod. You can say yes. So um, I am from Monroe, Louisiana, and that is the home of Duck Dynasty. But I grew up, uh, I'm in my mid-30s, and I grew up not knowing anything about those guys. They weren't significant in any kind of way. And then uh, probably 15 years ago, they just took off on this TV show, and more and more people started watching it. It became really popular, and I would start telling people, I'm from Monroe, and they would be like, oh, Duck Dynasty. And I'm like, oh, man, like, you know, that, that's not necessarily the great guys. I think they love Jesus. Uh, but I've hunted once in my life. Um, I, my dad's an art professor. I grew up going to art festivals and, and playing in rock bands. So I have, like, I don't even grow a beard. I can't grow a beard. So, like, I have almost nothing in common with, with those guys. But I, I'll never forget, it, it really spread out of the South whenever I went on a ski trip. I was in Colorado, and I hopped on this ski lift, and I'm sitting us this dude, and we're riding up. It's like a long ride. He's like, where are you from, man? I'm like, Monroe, Louisiana. He's like, Duck Dynasty. I was like, oh, man. Like, <laughs> now, like, nationwide, maybe worldwide, uh, Monroe's a relatively small town, not a lot for to be known for anyway, but I feel like people think of, like, Duck Dynasty now whenever they hear that name, and uh, they represent our town, whether I like it or not. It's one of the first things people think of. Now, to be honest, I think they're really fair representation of most of our town. I grew up in a high school where people uh, drove four-wheel drive trucks and had waders and shotguns in the back because they had been hunting that morning before going to school. And so uh, it probably is a good representation of uh, our city. But that's that's part of the picture here. Last week, um, my goal this morning is to be briefer because I won't be better than Austin is as a pastor. He did a great job preaching last week. I listened to what he uh, taught on, and he cast this vision of being a, a holy priesthood a royal people, that God, through Jesus Christ, has brought to culmination the promise that he has been declaring since the beginning, that he's going to bring a people to himself that represent his kingdom, that model what life is meant to be like. The narrative of the Old Testament can be uh, pointed to and summarized in a lot of different ways, but one of it can be one of repeated failure. And so we were reminded that Jesus really completes the covenant. He, God comes on one side, and then through Jesus, he comes to the other side of the con- covenant because we as people always fail. So Jesus did what we couldn't. He made this holy people, this royal priesthood, like you heard last week. And then Peter here in the text today, he begins to shift. Hopefully, after last week, you have a good picture of your identity in Christ. And so now uh, we are here to answer from Peter the so what. So what? The fact that we are 
a holy priesthood, a royal nation? How does that change the way we live? And so that's where we're diving in the text today. I want to look at verses 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Stay right there. This is a real identity is the first thing we see. We really are citizens of God's kingdom. It's breaking in, but it's not here yet in full. We should feel strange in this world. Do you feel that way? I feel that way sometimes. I turn on the TV or I watch a show or I read an article. I'm like, man, this is just so far from at least the way I want to live. Sometimes I find myself way in the world. But as followers of Jesus, more and more, the, the things of this world should feel alien to us. Exiles, sojourners. This world, this kingdom, this country that we live in is not what we were made for. It's not our ultimate home. But it is where we are here and now. And so there's this tension that we, we don't just live hoping for the kingdom, huddled away, isolated, but we are called to live in a particular way with our identity being as citizens of a different land, of a different country. And so Peter starts inward and then moves outward. And we're going to talk about politics today, so, so get prepared. I, I'm going to uh, push maybe in some ways that uh, your, your pastor uh, might not, but the, the, context, uh, the, the context is important. Because this text is not primarily about politics. It's not about kneeling to the emperor. It's not about governors. It's not about, you know, Republicans or Democrats. It's about how we live in a way that represents the kingdom of God. And so the first thing he says is, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We are in the middle of the already not yet. We are fighting with the sin and temptation that's in us and all around us. So this word for flesh, I think it can kind of function two ways. One, it is just our fleshly, earthly desires that left untamed are corrupted and lead to corruption and death. But it's also, uh, this flesh is also the things of this world, this present evil age is the phrase Paul likes to use. I like it too. This present evil age, it's passing away, but is currently the way things are. And so this flesh is kind of this twofold picture here of, of evil, of darkness that we are tempted to give ourselves to. And so my, my first question is, are you fighting that? It's a picture of sin is another way we can talk about this. Are you fighting sin? I think sin's something that I used to not like to talk about. There's still things that, I, I don't, that are true that I believe that I don't think are fun to talk about. But this is one that I think I've gotten more and more passionate about because God's really shifted my understanding of sin. It's, it's not just don'ts from God. God's not capricious. He's not mean. He's not trite. He's not just like, ah, don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. Like blind-eyed. What he knows is that sin brings death. It destroys. It wounds us. And so my, my question for you today, maybe you have grown accustomed to certain ways that your flesh is owning you, waging war against you. Before we start looking outward as how we live in this world around us, I want to ask in here, are you living as citizens of God's kingdom free from the flesh? Or are there parts of your flesh that are enslaving you? And do you really believe, do you really recognize that they're waging war on you, that they are wounding you. Sin destroys. So is there something, is there something you need to surrender to Jesus today? 
Because sin, the flesh, is a great destroyer. But Christ is an even better healer. And that's good news. Thank you, Cody. I don't know. It's good news that we have a great healer, but we have to bring these things to Christ, surrender them to us, and he will deliver us. So we're called to abstain from the passions of the flesh because it's good for us and also because it helps us to look different. The world is a place where the world's ruled by the flesh. There's no other option. See, because Christ is making us a new creation, we can choose to live into this new creation, this new citizenship, or we can choose not to. But those who are dying, those who are around us, they don't have an option. They are enslaved to the flesh. It is waging war against them. And so that's where we move to verse 12. It says, keep your good conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as we wage war against the flesh, we begin to live lives that are different. We look different. Then in the Old Testament, over and over again, the Lord says, I'm going to set you apart as a people so that you'll be a blessing to all nations. That's fulfilled in Jesus, but now it's being fulfilled in us because we are in Jesus. We should be a blessing to the people that we're around, to our country, to our state, to our city, to our community. And we live in an age where more and more there's disdain for the church. And some of that we, we rightly deserve, right? I'm not going to dive into all our failures as a church corporate leader, but over and over again, we've missed it. We've gotten so entangled in the world that we look too much like it. We do the things of the world in the banner of Jesus, and it brings shame upon his name and death and destruction to many. But the invitation here is that the good news is we don't have to, and as a pastor, I feel this weight sometimes, We don't have to redeem the name of the whole church everywhere. But here, where you are, in your context, you have an opportunity to live a life that's distinct, that's holy, that's set apart. To do good deeds. And so I'm going to pause in the middle of this picture, and I just want to take a sidestep, because I think most of you are like me. And when you hear good deeds, you begin to think of all this stuff that you need to do. Start to load up stuff on your back. I need to do, Dustin, that dude told me I need to do this and this and this and this. Because a lot of this text is about how we're to live. And that's helpful because when we live in a way that brings life, it's life-giving. But we have been set free. We're going to talk about that again in a minute. But the good news of Jesus is that we have been set free. We don't do good deeds because there's some leisure that God's keeping track of. And we don't do good deeds because we need to make ourselves feel decent about ourselves. We don't do good deeds for any other list of reasons other than this, that we, we do good in response to God's love for us. And so if you hear something in this text, whether it's now or it's later, you're like, man, I just really dropping the ball there. Man, I'm just missing it. Well, I want, to, I want more of that. The solution is not white knuckling. You are weak. I'm weak. We will fail if we just try to hold on a little harder. Maybe there's that flesh that you're striving with. Don't white-knuckle it. Bring it to Jesus. If, you, if there's a place of growth you want, the answer is to come to Jesus with it, to sit at his feet, to know his love more, to pray about it, to look at his word and remember his promises, 
to stop and be still long enough to listen to what he has to say to you about it. So please hear grace this morning. God's grace is sufficient for all of our failures that we might feel in this text, but our response to his love should stir us more and more to good works, to live in a way that's distinct, to live in a way that is part of his kingdom. And so there is this tension that we live in, but if you find yourself condemned or overwhelmed or exhausted, look to Jesus. Just pause. Sit at his feet. Remember his love. So, we do good deeds in this world, so what? So that this world that finds disdain for us knows that those are lies. And that doesn't mean they don't have legitimate concerns about the church or whatever, but we live in a time where the ideas of Christianity are becoming more and more backwards, more and more at odds with what is prevalent in culture, more and more offensive to people. And I think it's easy to to want to discount the call of Christ in people's lives by making up a straw man of what the church is like. And the invitation we have is that in our relationships, in the people around us, as we live in this way, people may reject Jesus and they may reject us, but they have to do it knowing that they're deceiving themselves. So when we treat people with kindness, with goodness, with love, with mercy, with self-control, with all the fruit of the Spirit, it it should shake people. And it doesn't mean they won't have disdain or vitriol or frustration towards us, but it does mean that they will know deep in that it's a lie, that it's a sham, that they're deceiving themselves because they have experienced love and kindness undeserved from us. So this is the big picture with which Peter is going to move into a whole list of different ways in which we model this. So we're going to talk about politics today. The next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about all kinds of different fun, challenging things that Austin's going to lead you through. How how do we live in our homes? How do we live in our communities? How do men and women and husband and wives relate to one another? But the picture in all these ways is that the good news of Jesus as citizens of his kingdom we live set apart. We live differently. We live in a way that people see and they say, oh, that's different. That's strange. What's going on here? I want to know more about it. It either, either stirs up curiosity or it brings disdain because they, they don't know what to do with that otherness. A friend of mine is uh, in London. She has just finished up her uh, Master's of Divinity and she's considering doing a PhD. And she's wanting to do it on evangelism. And one of the things that she's found is that in post-Christian context, in post-Christian context, most conversions don't happen from apologists, they don't happen from showing up to a church. God still works those means, but most conversions come from personal relationships. People meet a Christian that's following Jesus and they are just like, wow, there's something different. So that's our invitation today as we talk about politics and the next couple of weeks. How does Christ instruct us as citizens of his inbreaking kingdom to live in a way that's other than, that's different, that's unique? So we're going we're to shift. Let's, let's talk about politics. In verse 13 it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Be subject to every human institution. 
the text here doesn't really tell us what the beliefs and ideologies of that institution should be. Again, the theme here when engaging politics is one of kingdom, one of lordship. What Peter's just made clear, and he will make clear again at the end of this text, is that Jesus Christ is our only king. He is our ultimate authority. He is the only person that we bow the knee to, as Austin just said. So in that vein, how do we engage in politics? We honor people. We treat people with honor. And what I want to put forward here is that there's a lot less talk about our political stances and what they should be. And a lot more talk about how we should engage politically. There's a lot more talk about how we should engage politically. Guys, I I think there's a huge opportunity for us as followers of Jesus that we've largely missed, but still an opportunity for us to be distinct in this political sphere that is America by the tone and tenor of our voice. You can rest easy. I've not come with a list of things that you should and shouldn't believe or think politically. It's not my job. But I do have a list of how we should engage these things. And the the most central thing here is that we as citizens of Christ's kingdom engage politics with like we have hope. Like we have hope. So I'm going to reach with this analogy. I, I, I found it helpful for me. I have gotten, I grew up with both my parents being teachers. I grew up thoroughly middle class. I never really wanted for anything, but we didn't go on big vacations. There were times where we couldn't do things because we didn't have money in the bank. Since moving to Birmingham, I've gotten to know a few people who are really wealthy, just from different kind of things that I have multiple millions of dollars. And what I've realized is that people who are really wealthy, they relate to money and the world in one of two ways. They're either just some of the most calm, unconcerned, humble people that you meet. They don't, they're not worried about money. It's not what rules their life. You might not know. There's some friends coming to mind. I did not have a clue till after being my friends for a couple of years how wealthy they were because it just wasn't a big thing to them. But they had this kind of peace and, and unconcern about their finances. Or you're just overwhelmed with fear because your success and your wealth is what defines you. But I think the opportunity we have here with politics is to be like this first person. See, my friends aren't concerned when their car breaks down. If my car breaks down, I'm like, man, how am I going to pay for that? Money's coming out of savings. What's that going to mean? But, but these guys just have a calmness. You know, a lot of financial hardship could come their way before it costs them any kind of real concern. Because they just have those wells of wealth that keep them from having to be worried about that thing. And that's a blessing, and they use it as a blessing. But that kind of freedom lets them be unconcerned about these things. And I think that's the picture we have here of politics. We know who our king is. We know where our hope lies. So my question for us today is, are we engaging politics like our hope rests in them or in Jesus Christ? I think far too often, that's not the way that we talk, even as Christians, about politics. We begin to think that our hope our future, what's going to come, what's going to be safe, or what's going to make these important eternal changes is our politics and our political ideologies. And that's not what the scriptures say. Peter's writing to people who were underneath a godless emperor who wanted people to worship him. And Peter's word isn't overthrow him 
or protest against him or talk ill of him. It's to honor him. So as we engage in these conversations, do people find the way you talk about politics different and distinct and unique? Whether it's your liberal friends or your conservative friends or whatever group you're not affiliating with, do you talk about other politicians that maybe you get wrapped up in these conversations with, with honor and respect? You can disagree. You should disagree. You should have different opinions. You should be informed ethically. The scripture should evaluate and change the way we live, the way we engage in politics. I'm not saying don't be involved, but I'm saying be involved as people who have an eternal hope, as people who know that this land is not our eternal land. I think this is a bigger opportunity for evangelism than we realize. I can think of lots of people on all sides of the spectrum that speak with disdain and anger and bitterness. They don't honor people. They're not kind. They're not loving. And so my question that we can ask in all of life is, is the fruit of the Spirit bubbling up in these political spaces? What does it mean to honor someone? To, to treat them with love and kindness and peace and respect, self-control. Not to be angry, not to be enraged. I think that is a significant shift in difference that sets us apart. So now, that does not mean that we should just be utterly unconcerned about politics or that we should just sit on the sidelines as evil and corrupt things happen. Verse 14 says, uh, And for governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Government is supposed to do good. And it's supposed to punish evil. And when it fails to do that, we should speak up, but kindly and humbly. We should get involved with, with humility. So be involved in politics. Be a good citizen. But most importantly, honor. Seek peace. Speak the welfare of the city. Are you being a blessing when you have these conversations about politics? But what I think is way more true is that this is a call to be good citizens. See, what I think is easy in this, and I think this scripture does speak to, is we live in such a nationalized and globalized space. But here, there's no social media, there's no national news. Peter's writing to a small community. Church may be a lot like this one. They're reading this letter, and they're thinking about the local hardships that are happening. They're thinking about the difficult things that are going on in their community. They're talking about the ways that they're being persecuted or challenged as Christians in the space that they live in. And so my question for you today, politically, is a lot less about who are you voting for or what your uh, political affiliations are and how you're engaging that, other than we should always seek Christ's ethics. Wherever you land, we should push hard against that which is wrong, and we should lift up highly that which is good with humility and kindness. But I think this point here is much more clear that we're called to be good citizens here in the city of Birmingham, in your neighborhoods. Are you seeking to be a blessing to the city? And in what ways? Are you as a church? Are you as small groups? Are you as families? Are you looking for those opportunities to honor people, to respect people? I don't know, I, I don't know much about Mayor Woodfin, honestly, but 
regardless of what you think about, do you speak with him kindly when you can and quietly when you can't? Are you involved at your kid's school? Are you part of the chamber of commerce if you're a business person? I don't know what that looks like, but being involved in the community and then when you're engaged in those spaces, are you set apart and different as citizens of a different kingdom? Because what we see here in Peter over and over again is how we live matters. I think of my neighbor when I think about this. We moved into our house uh, about three years ago. Uh, oh, yeah, three years ago, pretty exactly. And uh, we were a little nervous. We moved from Crestwood. We found this home in Homewood that we didn't think we were going to find. It's right behind Sanford. And we had put an offer in. We, are, we had a contract, but we hadn't even closed on the house. And I pull up, and uh, our neighbor comes over. The, the wife uh, comes over, and she says, hey, are, are you all buying this house? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, well, we've been praying for you. We're so glad that you're here. And I was like, oh, that's nice. And I was like, I wonder if she's really been praying for me. I, the, the skeptic in me was like, okay, so it's just Southern charm. And then, like, literally couldn't have, couldn't have orchestrated. Her kid runs across the street. Hey, Mom, are these our new neighbors? I'm like, yeah. Are these the ones we've been praying for? And I was like, wow. Man, it just touched me that they had been. And I think what I've seen is they have held that not just with pastors that are moving. She didn't know what I did. She didn't know what I believed. She didn't know what I was about. And, and this family is a conduit for community in our neighborhood. They're the people that have the text thread for the whole neighborhood. They're the people who are inviting people to lawn parties. They're sending out welcome texts to the rest of us to let, let people know that Joe and Susie just moved in and uh, they're about to get married. They're letting us know that uh, my neighbor up the street who's 90 just had some medical problems. And if you're up for it, pray for her. Bring your meal. And what I know is that my neighbor that's next door to him, who's not a believer, who's really deconstructing his faith, is challenged by the way this man lives. And so are we living set-apart, honorable lives in the communities that we're in? What does that look like for you today? How are you being a good neighbor? Not like State Farm, but like Jesus. Are you all still with me? Good, good. So we're going to move here to verse 15. And I think we see all these little points that tie in together. I'm, I'm hitting the nail on the head over and over again. But I want you to see this bigger vision that Peter has. It says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And again, we see that how we live matters. If you leave with one, one tidbit today, is that how all we live matters. Citizens of this coming kingdom. And if you're here today, I can't cover the whole text of the Bible, but if you're like, what does that look like? Look to, look to the Gospels. Over and over again, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like, and tells a beautiful story. The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, and it's this radically different picture. If you sit down with the Gospels and you read Jesus talking about the kingdom of God and you look at America, one of the most Christian nations in the world, you will see stark contrast. Justice and mercy don't roll down here in America. People don't love what is good and hate what is evil here in America. They do at times. But this kingdom that we're called to be a part of is radically different, and it catches people's attention. It's a, a way in which Jesus invites people in to his family. 
And so we should do good in a way that silences people who would want to speak ill against us. We covered that a good bit already. But the other part is, how do we use our freedom? Because we have been set free. We talked about that earlier. We don't do good deeds to earn merit or to justify ourselves. I've, I was reading this article a while back, and it was talking about how people who aren't Christians are still seeking to justify themselves. We know that there's something wrong in us. We recognize that we do evil, and we want to strive to do enough good to do something better. I think that's the way we can see a lot of people's lives. Either they just give in to evil, say, well, there's no hope for me to be decent, so I'm going to give in to evil, or, well, I can just do a little bit more good than I can evil. And that's an exhausting kind of way to live. But we have freedom in Christ. Our good deeds are not what merits hope, not what merits salvation. It's Christ's work on the cross. But we have this freedom, and I think often we can use it to excuse isolation, selfishness, comfort, ease, sin. But what it should do is should stir us up to good works. So how are you using your freedom? This is a freedom that is very different for us because we live in a country that it's full of freedom. The, the people that Peter's writing to were not free. They were under rule. An emperor that believed nothing that they believed was at their helm. And, Christ is, and Peter is still telling them they're free people. And they should use their freedom differently. We are uniquely free in Christ. And the way we live should proclaim that. The way we engage politics should proclaim that. The way we live as citizens in this broken, present, evil age should proclaim that. What are you proclaiming with your life? How are you using your freedom? And are you striving like the world strives? Are you really resting in the fact that you've been set free? As you just stop and think, I want to I ask you to just look at parts of your life where you see God setting you apart. And then look at parts of your life where maybe you're not. Where are the parts of your life, this distinction is something that is key here. Where are parts of your life where you just are blending in with the rest of the people in that space? Some who aren't followers of Jesus. Some who don't really act like they're followers of Jesus. Do people see something distinct and unique? Because back to the family on our block that lives in this just radically inviting way. I think probably most of the people on my street would check the box, Christian. Some of them are jerks. Some of them don't really give a rip about the rest of people on the street. They're doing their own thing. They're seeking their own kingdom. And I'm thankful I'm not the one who discerns salvation or hope, but they're, they're not living set apart. And there's ways in my life that I'm failing to do that. I'm missing the mark. And the invitation is to see where can we bring these things to Christ to live differently, to live set apart. And we've kind of been all over the place. It's only six passages, but there's a lot of different contexts that Peter gives us, even in this little small passage. But I want us to, to end where we begin in verse 17. That's what Peter does. And I want us to see this big picture of we as citizens of Christ's kingdom should change every part of our lives. 
should change the way we live here in this community. It should change the way we engage politics. And verse 17 tells us three things. Page changed. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So as we engage in all these different spaces, maybe you're here and you're really apathetic about politics. Maybe it's your deep passion. Are you honoring everyone? See, Peter's pointing out, we honor the emperor. We honor those in leadership over us. We pray for those in leadership over us. Not just because they're set apart, but because we're called to honor everyone. Every person is made in the image of God. They're due honor and respect. And that's growingly revolutionary in today's society. So honor everyone. Again, if you're like, what does that look like? Honor is a word we don't use a lot. Treat them with human dignity. Be kind. Seek peace. Seek their welfare as far as it's in line with the good news of Jesus. Put them before yourselves. When we do this, people will see it. And on the day of judgment is what we read earlier. They'll look to Jesus. What that's saying is that when we treat people with honor and kindness and respect, when things get hard, there's a chance they're going to come to you and say, hey, you you live differently. I saw you go through hell and back, and you were, you're okay. Not like you faked it, you're okay, but like, I saw you weep, but you had hope. I saw you treat that person with kindness when they were so evil to you. That's what living, honoring everyone does. It's a taste of the kingdom of God that's at hand. I love coffee shops. Our church doesn't have offices. I spend a lot of time in coffee shops. When I get home and I've been at Seeds or Little Professor or fill in the blank your favorite coffee shop, I frequent almost all of them. My wife knows it. She's like, you smell like coffee. I have that aroma still in me. And as we spend more and more time with Jesus, we have more and more of the kingdom's aroma with us. And so that's how Peter moves us to love the brotherhood. Part of that kingdom aroma is that we are ambassadors. We are representatives of this coming kingdom, and we're not alone in that. Praise God. You're not alone. Look around. If you feel alone, you have this body. Emmanuel Church here in Birmingham, where there's a bunch of other faithful churches. We're not alone. And preaching in other churches is just such an encouragement to me to to remember that I'm not alone. My church is not alone. But we're, we're not just called to honor one another. We're called to love one another. We share Christ as our common bond. We're brothers and sisters eternally. So the way we live life together is a gift and should be profoundly different. People who are not in Jesus cannot love and live each other like we can. Not because we're better, but because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Are you living in brotherly love with some of the people in this room? And hopefully you love everyone in this room. But my point here, this picture here is this one anotherness that we see in the scriptures. Bearing with one another, grieving with one another, rejoicing with one another, confessing sin to one another, praying for one another. That brings life. 
And when people outside look in and see that, they know that Jesus is true, is what he says in John. By our love for one another, they will know that you are my disciples. It should be a distinctive of us. People are lonely in this world. I open my phone, I get a couple of different newspaper subscriptions, which I probably should cancel all of them. They're usually discouraging. But one of them was from the New York Times. It was, it was How to Make Friends, basically, was the, the title. How do, how do you make friends as adults? And it's just really sad. I had to quit reading it because it basically was just like adults outside the church don't know how to make, don't, they don't have anything in common with one another. They're isolated. They don't even know what kind of groups to get involved in. And usually it fails and falls apart anyway. Don't expect your friendships to last as part of the encouragement there. We have something radically and revolutionarily different. And when we live in brotherly love, people get to see a glimpse of that kingdom. They see that hope. We smell like this inbreaking kingdom, which is life to some and death to some. And then lastly, fear God. What I love about God's word is it always points us back to Jesus. The gospel is always apparent. So we're called to honor people. We should respect the authority and the power the government has over us. We should follow the rules as much as we can in accordance with our conscience. We should live at peace with others. But we aren't called to fear the president or the governor or the police or any other institution of power over us. We are only called to fear one person, and that is God. King of kings and Lord of lords. Because what he has already done is defeated sin and death. The two things that we would ultimately fear. And he sits enthroned above all things, with all power and rule and dominion in his hands. Fear God, and fear God alone. Because if you're trusting in Jesus for salvation, you have an eternal hope. You've been set apart. This world is not your own. The sweet things are a foretaste of what to come, and the bitterness is a reminder that this is not our place. Have hope. If you're in here today and you're not trusting in Jesus, someone in this room would love to have a conversation with you. I would, Austin would, maybe the friend you came here would. But I think a good reminder for me of when I need to stop and spend some time with Jesus or I need to reorient myself is when I start to fear other things other than God. The things that we put too much hope in are the things that we begin to fear. Whether it's their power over us or the possibility that they might fail. And the good news of Jesus getting up from the grave is that we don't need to fear any of those things. So the invitation today as I close in prayer is are you looking to Jesus and remembering his coming kingdom? Are you fearing God alone? And what might God be calling you to lay down at his feet? Is it politics? Is it something else? Is it the flesh that weighs war on you? What are the things that stir up fear? Let me pray. I'm going to continue to uh, take the table, I think, uh, in, in a minute. Um, and as you even approach the table, remember Christ's work that's been done for you, that you are citizens of this coming 
good and beautiful creation. Father, we thank you that you've drawn near to us in Jesus. God, I confess that there is a lot of brokenness all around us in the world. It's easy to fear. It's easy to want to try to fix things, to put our hope in a politician or a political party or an ideology. It's easy to fear those ideologies, those powers, those voices. Father, I pray today that you would help us to rest in Jesus. Thank you that we have an eternal hope. That our king is the king of kings. That nothing that happens in this world surprises you, Lord. Father, as we continue to respond in worship and the table, Lord, I pray that you would bring to mind by your spirit things that we need to lay at your feet. What are we fearing that's keeping us from honoring all people? What are the things that are waging war against our soul? Well, we love you and we thank you for the hope we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.